there's no two ways around it. Science has proven it. Every study on the planet that's got anything to do with coral is letting you know that we've lost 50% of it already up to today. Just in a short period of time, less than 30 years um, prior to, you know, them understanding what coral bleaching actually was and then, um, you know, uh, studying it and following those behaviors of ocean temperatures rising and having coral die off. Talk about a unique and fantastic project to help our oceans. Today I spoke to Julian Collier, who is the CEO, artist, and founder of Counting Coral. Unlike many of the coral restoration programs, he managed to combine the beauty of art, tourism, science to create reef structures which can be toured around by scuba divers to take off pressure from coral reefs to influence divers to appreciate the beauty of them and of course to promote sustainable and eco-friendly tourism. Now I would love you guys to head on over and make sure to check out his website, Instagram, all the things. There are so many ways you can help and get involved, whether you are a diver and want to jump right in and help with the actual coral restoration dives on the day, or if you want to help raise money or just spread information, please head on over to Counting Coral because the count is on, the time is ticking. Um, we need to act now. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean. Whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. podcast. Today I'm here with Julian Collier, which is our CEO and founder of Counting Coral. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and thanks for having me. Really appreciate your work and uh, your time. So thanks for that. Oh, thank you so much. I am so excited to learn about all the things you do. Um, so let's dive into it. What started Counting Coral? Oh, well, so I've had a fascination and an affinity to the ocean all of my life from being in the coastal community of Torquay in South Devon, England. We used to jump off the rocks and go snorkeling when we were kids and it was just a beautiful, wonderful thing. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to move to um, Malibu when I was uh, about 19 years old where I took up surfing and then just fell in love with the ocean again and it just further cemented um, that connection and a good buddy of mine uh, was a diver who's actually an abalone and a sea urchin diver uh, on a commercial level off the coast of california back in the day and uh, i was working at his house one day because i do some building work and uh, he had a tank what do you do with that tank and um, he's like 
well, you know, you're welcome to chuck it on and jump in my pool if you want to. So I strapped this thing on, jumped in his pool, started breathing at six feet in the water, and then he sends me off to the beach. So we head out to the beach. He's like, off you go then. I'm like, what do you mean? Just strap this thing. And it was something out of Jack Cousteau. It had like straps on my on there, canvas strap from the 60s. Sophie Pinto. Always happens. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Back to your first time underwater. So you dived in the pool and then your friend just said, let's head off into the ocean. <laughs> Pretty much. Well, it wasn't a let's, it was off you go. And I'm like, okay. off you go. I'm like, so yeah, we went off to the beach in Malibu and, uh, you know, I had this 1970s diving kit. It was a fabric strap uh, that would hold the tank on with a plastic backing. So we just strapped the tank on there, popped a mask on and off I went. Uh, you know, it's probably the biggest no-no in the diving community is going off on your own, in the middle of the ocean, having never uh, done it before <laughs> in your life. But this was probably 30 some odd years back. So um, yeah, I went under the water. Wow, just blew my mind. And went for every certification I could get until I exhausted myself, traveling the world, diving and just enjoying the ocean. It's always that first moment, right? And it, it can be just as simple as walking off the beach. And then it just captivates you. You're like, yes, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is about this underwater environment, but I need to be here as much as possible. Give me the certifications. Yeah. <laughs> I, I 100% agree with that. And, you know, fortunately I was off of California and we had these beautiful kelp beds and yeah. there's just such, such life, you know, octopuses from bat rays to angel sharks. It was just a stunning environment, you know, so that's, uh, that's what peaked it. And then when I went to the tropics, that was it, hooked on the tropics, got into surfing and uh, spent a lot of time down in Fiji uh, doing videography work for surfers. So I would jump in the water, film them, sell the DVDs uh, through the resort that I was working on. That then transpired into traveling up through the island chains, doing promotional uh, DVDs for the resorts. And I got to see some of the best reefs there were around those areas because they weren't gonna drop me off on a dead reef. Uh, they wanted me to film the best reefs there were and that's where no tourists were because they were a little bit further out, more fuel costs than the rest of it. So mm -hmm. I was very fortunate to have that experience back in that time when coral and uh, that type of life was really prolific. You know? What was the catalyst for me? I know it was diving in 2008, which was my open water course, and then diving again in 2010 um, on the Great Barrier Reef on the same dive spots because we went with the same company and just seeing the degradation of coral in those two short years. And that is what, 10, 12 years ago? How how was the coral like 30 years ago? Can you please <laughs> shed some light? Is it, has it been a massive difference or has it kind of accelerated in the recent years? Just in terms of your own personal opinion, what have you seen? Um, no, it's 100% the coral die off and death has accelerated. There's no two ways around it. Science has proven it. Every study on the planet that's got anything to do with coral is letting you know that we've lost 50% of it already up to today. Just in a short period of time, less than 30 years um, prior to, you know, them understanding what coral bleaching actually was and then, um, you know, uh, studying it and following those behaviors of ocean temperatures rising and having coral die off. 
So from my experience, I've seen reefs die off and reefs come back again and then die off again. So coral bleaching is not necessarily the end of coral, but it's just exponentially getting worse and worse and worse, which will be the end of coral. For the people who are listening who don't quite know about coral bleaching, because I've had a couple of episodes about coral and coral reefs, could you just give us a quick rundown of what does it mean when a coral is actually bleached and why is it not the end? Why is it still okay at some point? Um, yeah, so coral, um, they have a symbiotic relationship with the algae, and we'll keep it real simple. So there's this algae that photosynthesizes inside the coral, gives them energy, they feed from it, and they also feed outside of the body with uh, polyps that can catch little micro uh, particles and eat that way. So what ends up happening is if an ocean temperature starts to rise, that um, algae kind of goes, uh-oh, something's wrong here. I need to get away from this coral, this coral is sick, there's something alarmingly going wrong. So this algae basically just disappears. Now the algae is essentially the coloring for the coral. So when that, are, I'm sorry, when that algae disappears, the coral starts to bleach and go white. Um, but that's not the end of coral because if the ocean temperatures come down within a specific period of time, that algae can then uh, you know, go home essentially and start setting up shop and then that coral can survive again. But what's happening is the ocean temperatures are lasting longer uh, at higher temperatures and the algae just doesn't go back. So that coral ends up suffering, suffering and starving to death and dying, basically. And that's when we see the white bleached coral start growing other algae on top of it and it starts turning all gray and rubbly and kind of breaking apart. Yeah, because the algae's lost any defense because it's dead now. So the, uh, uh, the, you know, the seaweeds and the, the grubby stuff kind of starts growing all over it. And, um, you know, it's pretty much end of that reef, to be fair. And in terms of counting coral, what did you start doing to try and combat this issue? Well, so for me, it was always a very, um, it's a touchy subject because I think you asked earlier, you know, what we got, got me into all this type of stuff. And it, it's, it's like, you've got to pick your battles, right? So there's a, a limitless amount of battles that need fighting from deforestation to orangutans in Sumatra disappearing to, I mean, just, you know, the list goes on. It's hundreds and hundreds of things that we need to focus on in terms of saving ourselves and the planet. So I chose uh, coral because of my background with the um, videography work that I used to do and just having that deep appreciation for this animal life. And a lot of people don't realize it's an animal. Um, so I just, I just picked that one and I picked it because it's one of the hardest ones. And the least expressed on the planet, I think. That, that's slowly changing now and it's seeping into the consciousness of people that corals are animals, they are dying, they have value. Um, so that is now becoming more and more in the, in the forefront of people's consciousness. But so if I can give like the people that are listening like a, an analogy of how the, this kind of is such a very, very difficult thing to do. I can, I can only associate it to planting trees as a basic analogy. So 
I could say to you, hey, do you want to go down to the local garden center with five friends this weekend? We'll buy one tree each and we'll go and plant these trees, right? So that set us the cost of a tree, a shovel and a bucket of water and finding somewhere to dig that tree and put it in the ground. Simple, right? Now that tree in 15 to 25 years will start sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, which is essentially heating the oceans up. So that's the number one key driver that we can do is start sequestering this carbon. And there's been a few really massive, massive things that have happened. Ethiopia beat the world record for planting trees, which India held, and they planted, I believe it was 360 million trees in 24 hours. Now, wow. <laughs> you can imagine that. And I think India did 300 in 12 hours or 24 hours. I can't remember. And uh, please go take the time to look it up yourselves because it is a fantastic achievement. So we can do this on a huge and large scale. No doubt we can go plant trees all over the planet if there was motivation and there was money backing it. Now you associate that to planting a piece of coral. I got to spend about $1,000 US dollars to get my certification, which is open water, one. Then I've got the equipment, probably another $1,000 if you want nice uh, you know, dive computers and good regulators and you want to be safe in the water. Now that's only open water one. So then you've probably got to go for open water two, advanced and rescue, just to feel safe that you're doing something really you know, kind of dangerous because you can lose track of time if you're planting coral and all the rest of it, right? So that's just one individual looking at about $2,000. Then they got to either travel to the tropics, or if they live in tropics, they don't have to cover that cost. And then they're there for maybe seven days volunteering to plant some coral. Now, you're looking at a $10,000 investment to be able to probably plant 100 pieces of coral, and that's only one individual person. You try and motivate you know, 10,000 people, 20,000 people to go and plant out the entire east coast of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. It's an impossible task. Yeah. So, you know, that for me, the key thing with the coral was driving awareness. Once you drive awareness, you can then build on that. And that's what we do at Counting Coral. We design um, and build and install art pieces on the bottom of the seafloor that are first stage coral nurseries. So we get to put these cool sculptures in the seafloor and then we plant coral on them as a first stage nursery. And then they can be harvested and cultivated on those sculptures for many, 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 many years. And countless hundreds, if not thousands of fragments can be then clipped off the growing coral to either go on to a secondary nursery or be planted out on the reef. So this is a, a, an awareness driver, a coral nursery, an artificial reef, and then a revenue stream. So what we try and do is we put it in areas where there could be stakeholders. So that would be dive operators, hoteliers, um, resorts, all that type of stuff. So in the tropics, you know, we're pretty fortunate in that respect. There's a lot of people traveling there. So there is tourism, there is money. So, um, and here's one example of how that works. So Fiji, for instance, where we're doing our first installation, hopefully in March, um, is run by chiefs and metangalis. So they're family clans. Now, these family clans have owned the reef rights for really quite a long time. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of years, right? 
the government really doesn't have any say in these uh, reef rights. Sometimes they can, you know, argue and negotiate, but for the most part, these guys own the reefs. So if I've got to ask a village to say, hey, we want to put a sculptural piece in, in your ocean floor, everybody else but you is going to benefit from it. The dive operators can charge more money. The hotels can use marketing opportunities to bring tourists in to see the sculpture. That's unfair. So what we try and do is we negotiate deals with all the dive operators in the local area and the resorts uh, to do kind of like a handshake deal to say, hey, listen, guys, you're benefiting from this. We're donating it and placing it. You're benefiting from it. But you have to put a percentage of that money into community projects for the village that is associated with that reef for you guys to make money on. And then hopefully we win the battle of trying to get those to be marine protected areas. So it's a staging ground for that possibility to say, hey, there's revenue coming in here. There could be more revenue if there's a marine protected area. And it's just kind of a closed loop, full circle scenario that we're trying to build out. And it's incredibly difficult as a nonprofit to do that. Any organization, it's incredibly difficult because you've got to be there talking to these clansmen. You go sitting on grass huts, negotiating deals. It's very complicated and very difficult. And then you put the nonprofit side on top of that. You've actually got to raise monies for these sculptures. It becomes an incredible challenge. So in a nutshell, I picked coral because it was difficult and also artistic and fun uh, approach that I decided to take with it. Wow, that is truly a unique take of kind of hitting all the nails on the head, as, as people may say. Um, so you're building an artistic sculpture which gives value to the tourism and all of that. It's also a ground for new coral to grow, which then attracts fish, creates a whole you know, ecosystem in there. Um, and then one of the most important things, and I think people often forget, is we need to always, you know, give back to the local communities because those are their reefs. And as tourists, we often, you know, come to a place and we kind of, while we meant to help, we're doing quite the opposite by polluting and by, you know, using carbon emissions to get there and spending money on single-use plastics and all that. Well, I think you're, you know, you bring it up in the first stages, which is, hey, this has to be an intrinsic part of the project to get the local communities involved, have their approval, and keep them involved throughout the process. So I think that's really, that's really amazing. <laughs> there is one, there is one, thank you, but there is one other element to that, is also we're taking diver traffic off of the reef. Yes. So it's, it's not a huge percentage because, you know, um, well, it depends on the size of the installation, but you know, it's probably a half tank dive to just actually go down and see it. But what's become very popular is ecotourism in the dive industry is they want to go and help with coral planting and yep. they're really keen to do it. So then, then you are taking a nice percentage of divers off these pristine reefs and we want to keep them pristine and they're not when divers start diving on them because there's lots of chemicals in the sunscreen and they're kicking it and grabbing it and pulling on it. I mean, the stuff that you see is absolutely madness. Uh, but it's it's ignorance, it's lack of awareness. They don't know that coral is a living animal, and they'll quite happily grab a piece and snap it off and carry on about their dive. You know. Yeah, I mean, living in Western Australia, I 
I always forget and I make the assumptions that, well, people know, right? People know that coral reefs are precious and they're vital and, um, you know, they provide a lot of value uh, to, to us as a society. And then I see people standing on coral, like these massive boulder corals, which are thousands of years old. You know, they're as big as this room. They're an enormous, enormous structure. And then there's people just casually standing on top because they needed a break or grabbing hold of it to have a look underneath. And it just always blows my mind a little bit because I think this is one of the downsides of all the algorithms happening on our social media is our bubbles are always reinforced. So I think, oh, everyone knows about these things, but the reality is they don't. And that's why, as you were saying, communication and education and awareness is such a key part of helping protect our corals. Because for the people you know who just come for a holiday or don't live right next to the reef, it's still important to understand. So when they do get the chance to see the reef, they see it as this amazing ecosystem of animals and living things and, you know, less grabbing, touching, maybe, hopefully. Oh, well, kind of <laughs> shocking is like the point of contact is the dive shop. Mm. And there is zero, well, I, I'm not saying zero because I don't want to put a whole bunch of people into the same basket, but from my perspective, having been around hundreds of dive shops, there is very few of them that choose to educate their snorkelers, especially if they're on a, a resort where they can yeah. just snorkel off to a reef within three feet. There's no effort whatsoever to say, hey guys, this is where you get in the water, you must get out here, your flippers can kick and break reef, reef is an animal, please don't touch it. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people don't realize reef is actually quite hardy and dangerous Thing. I've had coral growing in my foot for about nine months. I've had fire coral give me an infection that I've had to go on to antibiotics. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be going and grabbing and touching this stuff. You just don't know what's going on down there. So um, uh, that's one other element too, you know. Yeah, I had a friend recently who stuck his hand in a cave and got a nice surprise from the lionfish. So I, I don't think he's sticking his hands into any more caves <laughs> for a while. Um, ruined the dive trip for the rest of the team, but I don't think he was too happy with his hand in a pot of boiling water on the way back to the <laughs> land. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's good to have these reminders. That I, and that's when I taught diving, I did really try and emphasize um, that, you know, you don't want to hurt the coral, but because a lot of people are quite selfishly driven, unfortunately, when they're not aware of the whole story and the whole story of coral reefs is quite long and complicated. Um, so yeah, you, you hit on that like kind of aspect. You will get hurt. It will hurt you. Fire coral stings a lot. You know, this is why you need to be protected. Don't touch stuff. <laughs> well, I always use that as the fear base. I start with mm -hmm. that. Whoever I'm with is like, hey, watch out. I tell the stories, you know, of like people being hospitalized because of it, because of the infections, you know, people don't realize. Yeah, like my partner, a couple, it will be four weeks ago now, um, he sat on um, Crown of Thorns. And to this day, he's got some of the spines in his butt and he's got big marks in there. And he, you know, is a very fit and healthy guy. So like it didn't get more infected and we disinfected it very carefully. But potentially he would have had to go to the hospital, get them surgically removed and go on antibiotics. Like it's 
it's not a joke. There's a lot in the ocean which is quite poison venomous? Poisonous. Both. <laughs> Both. Yeah. yeah I mean, you you, and... <laughs> being, an, uh, being an avid surfer and surfing in Fiji quite a lot and other places around the world, the surfers, you know, they tend to take the big hits on the coral. And they come out absolutely beaten to pieces. And a lot of the foreign people that are coming in, not Australians or New Zealanders, you know, English guys and Germans coming over, they've never experienced coral, they've never experienced reef. They get grazed up and then you should go about business as usual. Within three days, it's red. They need to be, you know, on antibiotics because they never took precautions to clean out the reef uh, and scrapes, you know. So it can be quite dangerous, you know. It can, and I don't know, it's a good little reminder that we need to respect our oceans. This week's episode is sponsored by you guys. Thank you so much to everyone who is a Patreon and helps me continue doing the work I am doing. We have some real fun behind the scenes. You get to see episodes before they even air. You get to see photos before they're edited, various bloopers and things from beach cleanups and underwater stories and personal Q&As and polls on what you would like to see next. I highly recommend you head on over there, Ocean Pancake, and yeah, just help support the podcast and all of that. I really appreciate all of you who have taken the time to listen, uh, sharing, or any of that also helps uh, me be able to spread the word about wonderful organizations and projects such as Counting Coral. Thank you guys so much. I I think the more I dive, the more I realize like the ocean is this unbelievable thing that has all the power in it. <laughs> and I think it's just important to have that respect for it, for my own safety as well, because it's easy to, you know, get overconfident and just be like, oh, everything's fine. And that's what I love about, it. you know, the start of diving. You just like walked into that beach in your little Jack Cousteau straps, like no fear. And as you learn, now you're like, oh, maybe. It was a ridiculously <laughs> stupid thing to do, but <laughs> and I don't advise it. But, uh, you know, it was one of those things back in the day, you know, <laughs> old school story, I guess. I will say that I have actually tried that diving setup. Um, one of my friends had it in his um, in his shed from New Zealand from the 1960s. And he was like, oh, well, do you want to try it? I will say it is the best <laughs> scuba diving equipment I have ever had. There's so much freedom. You don't need to bother with your buoyancy control because you're neutrally buoyant. Just on the surface, it's a little heavy. But underwater, Jack Cousteau knew what he was doing. <laughs> he did. He was a revolutionary guy. It was amazing. <laughs> like such a cool dude i wish i could have met <laughs> i know me too um so a little bit of a tangent there but back to to coral just a little bit of background for it could you let us know a bit about why are coral reefs so important to coastal ecosystems and why are they so valuable not only for the environments but also the people well it's it's Coral reefs are valuable to the entire ocean system, not just, um, you know, coastal communities, even though they have 
such intrinsic links to the cultures of people that live there and the environment. So, you know, just one of those uh, aspects is they are literally a barrier for ocean uh, swells coming in. So you can see that in surf communities uh, in Tahiti, um, Morea, uh, Fiji, Vanuatu, Cook Islands. These big swells come in and they break up that swell on the reef. The reef absorbs that pressure. Otherwise, it really realistically wouldn't be any beaches left in the tropics. They would just be devastated. And then for local communities, it's subsistence living. So I was in Aitutaki in the Cook Islands. And They've got arguably, I think it's the top 10 most beautiful place on the planet. And I, I have to agree, it was absolutely stunning. But there's no fish left in the lagoon. They've literally taken every fish out because you can stand up in the lagoon and it's only four feet deep in a huge amount of it. So they just walk with nets between each guy and catch everything in the net. Um, so that's taken subsistence living to the, a little bit of the extreme, but for the most part, these local communities rely on those reefs for food um, and to keep their, uh, their homes safe, you know, uh, during storms and stuff like that. And obviously, you know, coral reefs are the nursery for the bigger fish that swim out and create um, larger biomasses in the ocean for then unfortunately big trawlers to come and scoop them up and put them on our dinner plates so yeah it's it, you know the, the reefs are very very valuable in terms of our ecosystem and 100% need to be protected at all costs and we, we were talking about if coral reefs bleach then there's a chance they recover and then there's a chance that they die if they do die would the like structures not remain there and still not be those barriers between the swells and the islands or um, what not there? necessarily because so I mean it's a hard thing to describe so if you have a lot of branching coral um, what would be the best way to describe this when a wave comes down and breaks or tidal pushes push over a reef you have stag coral, elkhorn coral, all kinds of branching corals, plate corals. What that does is when that reef, that wave breaks over, it turns into bubbles essentially. It starts to aerate. And all those tiny little pockets catch all that air and slow everything down. And when there's no coral, that just breaks down to a limestone head essentially. It's just limestone rock or um, volcanic rock or whatever the substrate is this coral's been growing on. So it's not necessarily the end of the island, but it's certainly a dampener that is taken away. And the problem is we have uh, ocean rising, oceans that are rising now. So what would, would have been a shallower reef will now, you know, in the next few years be a meter higher than it should have been, especially on tidal surges, especially during the summer through thermal expansion of the ocean. So, um, yeah, it all just adds up to... Uh, Everything from, you know, the oceans absorbing heat to uh, ice caps melting to coral reefs dying off. And they all just add up to being quite detrimental to island nations and ultimately uh, mainland nations as time goes on with the oceans, right? You just mentioned that the oceans absorb heat. Could we just get into that a little bit? Because 
it's yeah. it's been something that's has been brought up many times and how the oceans play a very vital role in kind of slowing climate change or helping, you know, keeping it stable. And then the Paris Agreement has brought out the 1.5 degrees warning. But what does that actually mean? So what in the oceans is absorbing the heat and we don't? Well, so I don't think a lot of people understand or maybe not take the time to realize that, you know, we are a, a blue planet, we're not an earth planet and 70% of the um, planet is covered by earth, I mean, by water, some statistic around that amount, 70, 72, whatever. And what ends up happening is uh, the atmosphere, and as we know it, we call it climate change, global warming, and global warming is more the appropriate term uh, these days. So what ends up happening as we burn fossil fuels, as meat production starts to skyrocket and get out of control, deforestation, uh, more fires, the atmosphere traps heat. Now, the ocean absorbs about 93% of that heat. And I think they, equivalent, uh, they equate that to five atomic bombs per second going off in terms of energy that the ocean absorbs. So when the ocean absorbs that energy, it heats and it goes into what they call thermal expansion. So that uh, it's kind of like when you boil some potatoes uh, and you have a half a pot of water and then it begins to boil and it goes over the top. That's that water expanding as it heats. So when you have thermal expansion during the summer on the equatorial areas, even in higher latitude areas, you'll notice beach erosion, you'll notice islands starting to sink and disappear. And um, obviously with ice caps melting, that obviously adds to the volume too. So that's pretty much it. Global warming and the um, heat being absorbed by the ocean. Okay. So it really does play a vital role and that's why we need to keep all these ecosystems functioning. Optimally. The number one ecosystem we need to keep functioning is no more heat in the atmosphere. Uh, how do we do that one? <laughs> well, we cut down on animal production. That's that's one of the key drivers right now. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a devastating industry that needs to be um, pretty much wiped out, in my opinion. Unfortunately, for some reason, that is one of the things that, I don't know, it causes the most setback whenever I do mention, like, hey, not eating meat. <laughs> it's a good way to try and decrease our footprint. Um, everything else, you know, people are very happy to accept by decreasing their plastic use or even riding their bikes or turning off lights or whatever it may be, considering getting solar panels, although that's a whole separate potential minefield environmental issues but eating meat is something i don't know so deeply like personal for so many people or maybe it's just because i live in australia <laughs> <laughs> i live in the states trust me it's no different over here <laughs> i don't know it, i get a lot of pushback um from that so i don't know i've kind of lost what, what's the word like the enthusiasm to keep pushing that part of it because it's so difficult i find i don't know so i in my early 20 i've been a vegetarian since i was six i'm six foot three 240 pounds i can 
hike anything, surf anything. You know, I'm a beast, right? I don't need that type of protein. That's that's secondary protein to me. Uh, the primary protein is the plant base that the animal's eating, and uh, the byproduct is meat. So, in my opinion, I could fight this argument all day long. And uh, I was a fitness trainer for many years. And that was one of my key drivers when I went into the ocean for the first time, really, was I was looking at these fish going, I'm not eating these ever again. And I quit eating fish and tried to get every single friend I knew, knew to do that. And this was 27 years ago. The fishing industry has gotten worse. The fish quality is so detrimental to your health. Why would you ever eat it? And it's the same with animal products. Yeah. It's, it's a carcinogen. It's one of the leading death killers for heart disease. I mean, there's so many reasons why a person should just stop, pay a little bit of attention and say, I could live probably 10 years longer. I can save the animals. I can save the planet and I can save oceans. And it's just ludicrous to me that anybody subscribes into this, uh, you know, idea that we need protein from animals. And that is basically the only narrative that is driving meat consumption is you can't live without protein it's an absolute crock it definitely is and i know in the past year i have started going to the gym well who am i i've uh, started running more and lifting weights and doing more exercise and uh, i sometimes get tired and i always get the comment from friends up here like it's because you don't eat red meat you need some red meat Now, everybody gets <laughs> tired when they train. <laughs> um, that's, just, that's just what happens. Yeah. yeah. But how, how does, for, for those people who may not know, how does eating red meat tie into our ocean? Because I feel like that's a bit of a gap that some people don't quite see the connection between like cows and reefs. Yeah, it's a pretty simple connection in a few different ways. So... Animals produce methane um, and feces and they need forests chopped down to graze and then a large portion of those lands are just growing soybean and corn to feed the animals. Okay. So when you add all those elements up that, you know, the methane from a cow, I think it's like 270 times worse than CO2. I mean, don't quote me on these numbers. I'm just uh, throwing them off the top of my head right now. But they are massive key drivers for um, the global warming. And then you look at the Amazon as being hacked down at an alarming rate simply for cattle grazing. And then those cattle occupy that land. There is no septic systems for animals. So if you imagine, the human race not having septic systems or sewage treatment, uh, there'd be kicking off, there'd be riots in the streets because you wouldn't be able to stand near the beach because of the smell. You wouldn't yeah. be able to walk to the supermarket because of the smell. And yet we fully accept that and allow that from animals. Now those animals, they go on the ground, usually goes into big spread fields, if not into giant water tanks, and then they're spread out onto crop fields. And then the rains come and those rains put them into the streams, tributaries, rivers, ultimately out into the ocean. Now, a lot of, also a lot of that is um, um, antibiotics, uh, steroids mm -hmm. that's passed through the animal. 
And then there's pesticides that are sprayed on the crops. Now those pesticides also go into the ocean and create dead zones. So just since from the 70s, there was like, I think one dead zone in the Gulf of California. Now the entire Gulf of California is considered a dead zone where nothing lives because the oxygen is being uh, stripped from the water through bacteria and through um, like animal, uh, uh, like algae that grows and steals the oxygen and the fish basically die. Uh, what people don't understand is, you know, what fish do breathe oxygen, they just do it underwater and they don't come up, you know, on grass or something like that. So, yeah. yeah, there's so many compounding factors to that. I'm just trying to simplify as best as I can. But no, that's, you can that's, keep going that's great. And <laughs> digging and digging and every single example is show, showing that animal production is the number one key driver for killing our oceans and ocean temperatures rising so yeah um for for people who are curious i would highly recommend checking out some of the satellite data of these ocean dead zones and you really see especially after big rainfall you see the amount of sediment that is washed down from rivers which comes from farms, which is filled of these extra fertilizers, pesticides, antibiotics, all that feces, and that gets washed um, directly into the reefs. And this is one of the big things happening on the east coast of Australia. After all of our heavy rains, we have these massive, basically, floods going out to the Great Barrier Reef, um, where the water quality has now been deemed, what was it, like poor or excessively poor? Um, according to the official uh, reef water system, I don't know. I'll include the links in the show notes as as per usual. But um, it's a it's a massive issue, and yeah. Anyway, well, it's just compounding. <laughs> it's compounding issues, so it's not just one issue. It's the ten issues that all add up <sighs> that end up killing off coral reefs, losing forests, losing animal life, and it's just a never-ending vicious cycle. And um, there needs to be massive change made, and um, it only comes from a collective of people. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from the ideology that somebody else is going to do it for you. The government is responsible. The farmers are responsible. No, you're responsible. You're the person purchasing, choosing to spend that $1 bill on either a plastic item or a non-plastic item or a meat product or a non-meat product you have the power and the choice to make decisions every single day mm -hmm. to be a part of a collective and what we have to do is build up that collective so we're all part of it and we all understand the rules we buy into society on a daily basis we pay our taxes we go to school we do all this so why can't we buy into the ideology that nature is a resource that we've been stealing from since the beginning of time you wouldn't walk into a restaurant, order a sandwich, and walk out without paying. You'd be chased down, the cops would come and get you, go to jail. But why are we just all of a sudden going and taking forests down without putting any payment back? Why are we stealing food from a daily basis? Why are we stealing water? We are literally thieves stealing from nature. And nature has this infinite wisdom of being able to steal back really quickly and very harshly, quickly in a time frame of the planet, but very slow in the time frame of the evolution of a planet. But that, those have serious consequences to us as human beings. 
Um, I think you've just answered my last question, which is what is the one piece of advice you would give to people if they want to help the oceans? Well, here's the advice. Here's the advice. And it's a tough one, right? It's not easy. Open up the door and step over that threshold into something that might be a little bit scary and might be a little bit challenging. Because when we are confined in the constructs of our own minds and we don't step out of that with any type of stimulation to want to learn or want to change, we are confined, we are stuck. What you have to do is open up that door and step through it. Now, opening up that door is very scary because it's a big wide world out there. However, fear is the only thing that keeps you in that room. It's not fearful to step out and do something generous. It's not fearful to give to people. It's not fearful to give to animals. It's not fearful to be mindful of what you're doing on a daily basis. And that's what it is. We're lazy people. You know, we've been stuck in a society where everything's given to us. We don't have to think. And that is the number one worst thing that can happen to a society is they stop thinking. You know, but it's been bred into us from day to day to day, you know. No, we'll make that decision. You've got to go to school. You need to learn this. You need to do this in order to get a job. If you don't pay your taxes, you go into jail. We are now confined in somebody else's ideology. And once we step out from that, we regain the power as individuals and the collective. Beautifully put. Um, I think this podcast has been very educational. Um, I, I love having these discussions and these tangents. And I certainly refresh on the importance of coral reef systems and i truly admire the work you're doing and i'm very excited to hear about the progress in Fiji. so you'll have to come back on and let us know how that went i will 100 percent love to come back on and let you know <laughs> covid's a bit of a killer right now we don't know if we can actually do it but hopefully somewhere between uh, january and march is our target date so we'll see I think Australia is planning to open up the states at least. Um, so maybe some movement will be happening in the world. Um, <laughs> so yeah, thank you so much uh, for, for joining me. And yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you next time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Have a good day. Didn't I tell you this was a fantastic project? I feel inspired and impassioned and ready to make a change in coral reef restoration. I hope that the borders open up soon so I can head on over to Fiji and check out that art installation. Uh, but for now, what I'm going to be doing is trying to spread the love and awareness of counting coral. If you want to get involved, please feel free. Share this podcast with your friends and family. Share their website. Start a fundraiser. Get involved, learn more about coral. There are so many things to unpack. Um, there is an infinite amount of things to unpack almost, but it's really amazing to see how many fantastic people are working together to try and protect our oceans. I don't know about you, but it definitely makes me feel like together through voting with our dollar, through voting with our purchasing uh, and making the choices every day we can create that shift, that conscious shift to protect our oceans and our earth. So thank you so much for listening. And as always, make sure to check out Graham Moe's, who is the mind behind the funky beats in ocean pancake music. 
And yeah, he is fantastic. Based in Brisbane, go check him out live if you have the chance. Otherwise, find him online, Graham Moe's Music. Thank you so much, and I'll see you guys next week.